Folks, this is Jack Spierka with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is January the 20th, 2017, and it is Friday, Friday, Friday. It is the Monster Show of the Week, the Expert Council Q&A Show. This is where you send your questions to me. You email them in. Occasionally, I still get a phone call question for the Expert Council. I I think we've been doing it this way long enough, well over a year now, that everybody should be familiar with it. You want to send a question in for an expert panel member, this is what you do. You send an email to my email address, jack at com, jack at com, and then in the subject line you put TSPC expert. Then you, you say, my question is for expert council member, fill in the blank, my question is... One to two sentences that are your question, and then your details. That is the best way where I can get it screened. I can find it in the folder when I'm saying, I need questions for Tim Glance today. I go to my Outlook folder, and I search this folder for Glance. So if you don't tell me who you want the question addressed to, I may not find it when I'm screening. Okay, So that's why I give you formulas and, and, and procedures so that I can best serve you, not because I'm a pain in the ass, all right? So here's what we have today. We have a question on storing def fluid for your diesel for Stephen Harris. Who else would that be for? We have a question dealing with low testosterone. Gary Collins will field that. We have a question on removing a plaster cast. Well, you just go to the doctor and get it cut off. Well, what, 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 what if? What if you can't get to the doctor and a cast has to come off? Doc Bones will tell us all about that. No one better that we have to do that for us. Overwintering a weak beehive. Michael Jordan will talk about the ins and outs of that. Tim Glantz will talk to us about long-term life in military tents. Not really the life, but picking the tent. If you're going to live in a tent for a while, I'll chime in after I hear what Tim has to say, because I have some opinions on this, because I've done it, and I don't really look forward to doing it again unless I absolutely have to, but I do have to admit that it worked. Next up, using discharged pool water, dealing with the chlorine factor. Jeff Lawton will talk about that. And then building a greenhouse. Should we do that from scratch or from a kit? Or in this case, maybe not at all. I'm going to feel that one from a listener. We'll have all of that more in just a bit before we do. Let's go ahead and take care of our two sponsors of the day. Hey, have you ever thought about making a knife from scratch but just felt it was too complicated? Well, at KnifeKits.com, anyone can learn to make great knives, even me. From the total newbie to the master bladesmith, they have everything you need to make great knives, kydex sheets, and more. Find it all at KnifeKits.com. You know, I use a Berkey water filter in my home, and I have for over six years now. It's important to me to have the best quality water, but it's also important for me to get great service, pricing, and support, which is why I only deal with one source. That's Jeff the Berkey Guy Gleason, one of the top dealers of Berkey in the world with customer service that will blow you away. Learn more at Directive21.com. Again, Directive, and then the number is 21.com. And our TSP Business Directory supporter of the day is Bridgetown Marketing Engraving. They specialize in personalized knives and gift items. They also engrave gun parts, kitchen cutlery, and other items. You can send them in your own knife to get it engraved. Check out Bridgetown Marketing in the, or Bridgetown Marking in the TSP Business Directory. And remember, you too can list your business in the TSP Business Directory for as little as five bucks for every six months. 
with that, uh, I want to uh, get into our TSP history segment, and this is another one of those days, man, where there's there's so much going on uh, in in 1935, from Schrodinger's cat to soaking the poor and soaking the rich and the New Deal, and uh, it's a difficult one to pick. But I'm, I'm probably going to talk about the genesis of Social Security here today because it's something we're still dealing with in in a really big way, and it's well, you'll hear when we get to it. So, what do I have for you today from Alex Shrugged at the TSP Wiki? I have Soaking the Rich, the Second New Deal. And I have Soaking the Poor, the Social Security Tax. And I have Killing Schrodinger's Cat. I also have Notable Births, and there's a lot of them. Ron Paul, currently living U.S. congressman. He has managed to teach libertarian ideals without sounding like a kook. Geraldine Ferraro, U.S. congresswoman, Democrat, first woman VP candidate from a major political party. And does not say living, so she has passed on. I did not know that. Mahmoud Abbas, living, chairman of the PLO after Yasser Arafat. Tenzin Geisto, living, uh, better known as the 14th Dalai Lama beginning in 1950 to present. Uh, And in entertainment, Elvis Presley was born this year. The king of rock and roll, after he died, he was spotted everywhere. And my wife and I hired his babysitter. That's Alex, not me. Julie Andrews, living, best known as Mary Poppins, and for Maria in the Sound of Music, and the Queen in the Prince's Diaries. Bob Denver, known as Gilligan on Gilligan's Island, he has also passed on. That was a guy I didn't want to see go. I liked him. Sony Bono, half of the singing duo of Sonny and Cher, U.S. congressman, Republican. He worked to extend copyright protection to Mickey Mouse. Thanks a lot, Sonny. I didn't know he had passed on either, but apparently so. In other news, the vinyl shower curtain is invented. Waldo turns PVC into flexible sheets, but has no practical use. Then while watching his wife sew up a new shower curtain, the idea hits him. War is a Racket is published. General Smedley Butler exposes war as a means to profit for wealthy industrialists. Butler recently exposed a plot by businessmen to overthrow FDR. Apparently someone had been recruiting Butler. The novel, It Can't Happen Here, is published. As the story goes, a populist president is elected, promising a return to patriotism, traditional values, and economic reform, and becomes a dictator. Golly, where do we get these ideas? Hmm. Remember what I told you about FDR yesterday and Eleanor? I'm just, uh, or two days ago, and Eleanor? Yeah, what Eleanor wanted? Eleanor wanted FDR to become a dictator, and damn if it wasn't possible. I mean, really. So, yeah, I'm going to read Soaking the Poor, the Social Security Tax, for you today. Quote, democracy is the theory that the common people know what they want and deserve to get it good and hard. H.L. Mencken, 1915. As part of FDR's initiative to help elderly workers, he proposes a special tax. Gee, thanks. The tax money will be used to supplement the income of an elderly worker. If he continues to work as he's expected to, his benefit is reduced accordingly. The first recipients of the benefits haven't paid in very much, so they will benefit greatly. The next generation will also benefit, although less so, and so so forth down the line. Currently, this is only for the elderly who need some extra help. Later, it will be sold as a pension plan, but in fact, it's a tax on income. It is also a regressive tax, which means that more money you make, the less you pay in taxes. It's like filling up a bucket. Once the bucket is full, you stop. If you fill it fast with higher income, you stop sooner. If you fill it slowly with lower income, you stop later or not at all. If this were really a pension fund, they would then whatever you put in your bucket would be yours. But this is Social Security. You're filling someone else's bucket up. As you enter the workforce and pay the tax, money goes to the person who became before you to pay his benefit. The workers who come after you will pay yours, but it's not a one-to-one payment. 
It takes several workers to pay your benefit, and it will take even more to pay theirs. This is called a pyramid scheme, and if you try to sell this plan in the private sector, you would be arrested. But this is government, so it's okay, somehow. My take by Alex Shrug, Margaret Thatcher used to say, paraphrasing, the only the problem with socialism is that eventually you run out of other people's money. That includes Social Security. FDR must have known the system would run out of money eventually, but the Great Depression was on, and it was an emergency. It always is. If they were honest, they would pay off the people in the current system with 40 acres and a mule, so to speak. New people could make their own retirement arrangements. It's important to remember the lesson of Germany and economic collapse. When the government could no longer foot the bill to keep elderly in retirement, the elderly were retired in a hard way. Letters still exist of fathers and mothers pleading for their adult children to take them in, but their adult children could barely feed our own families. It doesn't have to end that way for us, but for now, there's nothing to prevent it. And, and, and it is true. I mean, everything Alex said is true. Social Security is a pyramid scheme, and, and the people that try to defend it always fall back to in the end, but the government can guarantee it, so it's not a, it's not a pyramid scheme. Well, first of all, that's, that's highly debatable. And the government can guarantee the money, but not the value of it, uh, through the Federal Reserve issuance of additional currency. And the more they issue, the less the currency's worth. That's just how freaking economics work, but what do I know? I'm just a redneck duck farmer. We have a lot of problems, though, with this, and, and some amount to the United States is currently barely at replacement population birth rates. And we have gone to a point where, like, there were 15 workers for every one that was, you know, in Social Security retirement to a point now where we have about three workers to every one. I mean, they literally could send you a picture of your old person and, and two other people, and the three of you are, like, sponsoring them like, you know, someone on the, what do you call like, TV, like you sponsor a child in, in South America or whatever. Now, I'm not putting down the person getting the money. They paid their money in through their whole life, and they were promised that they would be taken care of. I'm putting down the system. And it's it's interesting that whenever you put the system down, people just think you're a heartless bastard don't care about old people. I've said many times, I, I think Alex and I are completely in agreement with the way this needs to be done. There are people currently dependent on this system. They need to be we need to keep a promise to them. There are people that have lost a lot of opportunity in their lives because this money was taken from them to be responsible and safe for themselves. And we need to pay them some portion of what they were. And we need to figure out a way out of this thing. Um, there is no justification for Social Security in, in a modern society that we live in. It may go away anyway. It may go away anyway. And you guys know how it might go away. But I'm not going to tell you. And if you don't know right now, you ain't been paying attention. It could all go away, and I don't mean, ah, the world is over, and, you know, fire and brimstone and economic collapse, and eh, it could go away because it could all get replaced by something else. We'll see. Some ways it might be good if it did, and other ways it might be horrible. It's up to you to figure out what I'm talking about today, my take by Jack Spirico. With that, let's go ahead and take uh, the first call of the day. This call is for Stephen Harris, and it's about storing death. What is death? Well, you'll know by the time Steve's done answering the question, if you don't already. Hi, this is Steve Harris calling in to answer your question. I got one today from Michael, and it has to do with DEF fluid. That's D-E-F. stands for Diesel Exhaust Fluid. He says, in my travels, I have found that I can buy DEF fluid at the pump by the gallon at most truck stops. It costs less than half the cost of buying a two-and-a-half-gallon 
uh, tank of the stuff at the, at the auto parts store, which is about 15 bucks. And, uh, at dealerships and the auto parts stores. But going to the truck stop isn't always convenient since most are on the outskirts of town, so I want to store some if home. That's deaf fluid. Since deaf fluid is corrosive, and actually, Michael, it's really not, and can freeze, what are the approved containers to store it in or containers that will work, and what is the shelf life of this stuff? Deaf fluid is 32% urea and 66% demineralized water. It is mixed in with the selective catalytic reduction unit, or selective reduction catalyst, I forget, it's one of the two. And it's used to eliminate the, the, nitro the nitrogen oxides that form pollution and smog in diesel vehicles. You only need to worry about this if you have a diesel vehicle that is 2010 and newer. Yes, if you have a 2010 or newer, we actually have another hole next to the gas, the diesel hole that goes to the diesel tank. That is a little blue hole, and it goes to the deaf fluid tank. And we actually have to pour deaf fluid into the deaf fluid tank so our vehicle emits less pollution. If you run out of deaf fluid, the computer will warn you and warn you. And then after about 200 miles, it will actually throttle back your vehicle, and you can drive no faster than 25 miles an hour. And after some more time of another 100 miles, it will actually turn off your vehicle, and you cannot start your vehicle if you do not have deaf fluid. Yeah, thank you so much to the EPA for giving us something that will turn off our vehicle when we're in the middle of Death Valley and it's 120 degrees. The idiocy of this is beyond comprehension. So those of us with diesel vehicles that are 2010 or newer, like me, Jack has a 2006 or a 2004, so he doesn't have to do this. Um, I, if I store diesel fuel, I have to store death fluid because it will consume the death fluid at a rate of about two to six percent of what the percentage of diesel fuel is. So for every hundred gallons, I have to put in presumably, according to what the specs are, between two and six gallons of death fluid. In reality, I dump in about two and a half gallons of death fluid probably every several thousand miles. It tends to use more death fluid when I'm driving on the highway than when I'm driving around town. So um, I can definitely go like 5,000 miles on two and a half gallons of death fluid. Quote, unquote, corrosive. Yeah, well, there's things that you would eat. There's fruits you would eat that are more alkaline than death fluid is. If you get it on your hands, you just wash it off. That's all there's to it. Uh, you're not going to store it in a metal container. You are going to store it in a plastic container. And basically, you can store deaf fluid in any plastic container that is not a milk carton. So, <laughs> I don't know. I wouldn't store it in a soda pop bottle. Because some idiot is going to go, oh, lemon lime soda. And they're going to drink it, and they're going to drink a bunch of urea, and it's not going to be good for them. If you do end up storing it in two-liter bottles, make sure you put a bunch of Mr. Yuck stickers on it. Um, really, any five-gallon or seven-and-a-half-gallon container you would store water in, like from Walmart, the aqua tainers, 
or the five-gallon water jugs. Just make sure you mark it with a big, fat, sharpie market diesel exhaust fluid, death fluid, not water, do not drink. And as far as storability of it, the shelf life is pretty much infinite on it. The urea is going to stay stable. It's not going to really want to break down in an aqueous solution. So there is your short answer, Michael. Store it in the same thing you would store water in, but make sure you mark it so it doesn't get accidentally consumed and drunk and poison someone. And then you can go to the truck stop, fill up with and get cheaper death fluid and then keep it at home. And yeah, it freezes, but don't worry, it unfreezes. So if it gets frozen into a solid block of ice, just let it unfreeze back to a liquid. It's not going to hurt the fluid. It'll be just absolutely fine. That's your short answer today on storing what you must do now if you have a new diesel and you want to store diesel fluid. You also got to store diesel exhaust fluid. Thank you, Obama and your EPA. This is Steve Harris for the Expert Panel reminding you, send in some more questions. I love getting getting your questions and answering them. You know, if you want to find out what else what I've done with it's been a long day, guys. Sorry. One of those days. If you want to find everything I've done with Jack and all my free preparedness classes that I've done with him and on my own, please go to Stephen1234.com. Thanks guys. I'll talk to you hopefully next week. I just want to weigh in with my opinion on the whole deaf thing. I don't actually have a problem with the product. I think there's a lot of good value. I think the, the product more than pays for itself in what it does. I think it actually helps diesel trucks run more efficiently. I think it's a fine product. Um, the EPA call, requiring vehicle manufacturers to basically cripple your vehicle if it runs out of death is my problem. And it's why I, I sincerely advise you that if you're buying a diesel truck for like a farm truck, now if, if you're going to be driving a truck long distances all the time, you're going to really rely on it. It's going to be not just a, a truck to use on your farm and go pick up some material with or something like that, but it's going to be you know a truck that gets used a lot. There's a great case for buying a new vehicle. If you're going to be towing an RV around like Gary Collins, who's up next segment is doing he just went out and bought a beautiful brand new diesel he had it out here when he came to the last workshop it was a gorgeous truck and i okay i get it if you're gonna buy a truck to use like i do so i bought my truck in 2010 i think and it's 2005 vehicle it was five years old i paid sixteen thousand dollars for it it had like ninety four thousand miles on it okay I've driven it since then, and I mean, it's made some long-distance trips and all, but I've got like 136,000 miles on it, and I think I put less than 10,000 miles on it last year. If you're going to be doing that, okay, and you're going to pull a heavy trailer once in a blue moon, and you, if you can find a pre-def diesel, I really recommend it. I also, this is part of what has me really thinking about doing, eventually someday I'm going to do a project vehicle, a, you know, a restoration. And we just had Tim Glantz on, and we were talking about things like the uh, the Jeeps and all, and they're cool. But I really think many times about getting a Cut V, the pickup model, uh, and, and, and doing that one, because that is, a you know, they're not fast, but they'll run forever. 
They really will. Uh, the rear end in those things alone is just unbelievable. So it's just something I'll put out there that, you know, if you want a, a, a farm vehicle and you want a diesel truck, why have this extra requirement? If you're going to be towing your fifth wheel up and down a mountain often or something, at some point these vehicles, I don't care how long they say diesel runs, even if the motor's in great shape, the body starts to fall apart. And a well-maintained diesel, the, the truck should fall apart around the engine as it completely wears out. I mean, that's <laughs> the engine should still be going. Uh, really, that's, that's, that's one of the reasons I love diesels. So next up I have a question for Gary Collins. It's not about diesels or travel trailers. It's about low testosterone in a person that really shouldn't have it and can't really figure out why. Gary, take it away. This is Gary Collins of PrimalPowerMethod.com, answering all your questions related to health, wellness, primal, paleo, off the grid, and just simplifying your life in general. So today, a good question, as always, and the testosterone question with men, aging. Um, even though this, uh, this individual is not that old, in their early 30s, and This has become quite a hot issue, especially I deal with clients talking about this with all of the testosterone replacement therapy or TRT, as they call it. Think uh, cybergenics. If you've ever seen those commercials of these 70 year old ripped dudes, huge and show before and after pictures. Well, guess what? They're jacking them up with testosterone. Um, there's no way to get that big any other way. With that, it's become a big industry. So So, so this individual's worried that they got their blood work back and that it showed that they had a low level right around 249. And he is right. The, the correct level is anywhere between 300, 400 to a thousand. It's an arbitrary. I've gotten answers from doctors all over the board there, but as a general rule, that does apply. I found something out last year though about these numbers that throws it way off. I got my uh, physical done. I get a physical done every year where I get my blood work drawn. And my testosterone came back, I want to say, between 230 and 240, so not too far off of uh, the individual's question here. And I was like, holy cow, what happened, you know? And the doctor looked at me and goes, no, you're fine. You're, you're totally, you're actually a little bit above average. And I went, oh, okay. And I went, why? I went, I don't understand the numbers. Well, get this. What has happened with the industry of testosterone replacement therapy and bioidentical hormones and all these new anti-aging doctors, like I said, it's turned into a multi-billion dollar business now. Everyone's got low testosterone, trust me, because they want you to have low testosterone just like everyone had high cholesterol. Same deal, same scam, creating a condition that really doesn't exist. Um, don't get me wrong. There is low low testosterone levels. There is, but not anywhere near what uh, people are getting diagnosed with today. And he went, well, it depends on the lab. I didn't realize this, but different labs will actually have different indicators and numbers. So your level, that number could be different at another lab. And I asked him, well, how do I know how that compares with the old numbers that I know. And he goes, I don't know. And I actually, after this, I asked a couple doctors and some in the, the hormone replacement world and said, hey, 
how do you know what these numbers are? And I told them what my number was, and they go, well, I don't know what lab. And they even dug, and I told them what lab, and they went, well, I still don't understand what that number means. So you better go back to your doctor and ask. I'm wondering if they told you it was low. And the thing is, that doctor may not even know that the lab could give them a different number as opposed to the old readings. And, and this individual seems to do, be doing everything fairly right. And here's the key indicator for, for me when dealing with clients to know if you have low testosterone levels on top of a blood test is if you're lethargic, uh, maybe have slight depression or depressed, um, loss of muscle mass, also uh, low libido, low sex drive, maybe erectile dysfunction. If you don't have those, you do not, and you, you know, you have normal sex, you have normal erections, you haven't lost muscle mass, you, you look normal. Guess what? You probably don't have low testosterone. Um, I like to look at the symptoms that go along with it besides just a blood test. And you guys know I've talked about that several times, blood testing that, you know, that's a snapshot of that particular time. So you gotta be real careful with blood testing. Um, and if you are possibly suffering from these, I would try try the natural way first, which is obviously getting optimal vitamin D, omega threes, get uh, resistance training, lift some heavy objects, get plenty of street sleep, reduce stress because stress in, in, uh, increases cortisol, which also doesn't increase testosterone, but it increases uh, estrogen as well at a higher rate is what stress does. So it will actually diminish your testosterone levels because they will counteract each other. Um, and far as he also has RLS, which I'm guessing he means restless leg syndrome. I actually had to go look that acronym up real quick because I was all RLS. Huh. You know, gosh, in the government, that meant we used to say that with a boss with meaning retard loose somewhere. <laughs> I hope I didn't offend anyone there, but uh, he has that. Well, with that, these are two separate questions, so this may run a little long, and he's asking if possibly the RLS could have something to do with his possible low testosterone. Well, I would say no, because he doesn't have any of the symptoms of low testosterone. He just has a blood test reading. So I would say no. With the RLS, I would simply ask, does anyone on in his family, mother or father, have it? Is there any like genetic uh, predisposition for this prior? If not, I would say, okay, maybe it has something to do with diet. But if it's a genetic defect from one or both parents, I would go, okay, there's a good chance it's genetic. But actually, doctors don't even really agree what causes RLS. They really don't have a good grasp of it. But he asks, could it be mineral deficiency or mineral imbalance? Yes, it absolutely could be. Um, what I would do is I would start – and think of it this way. There's, there's a short-circuiting going on somewhere, and you have to remember the body is nothing but a neuroelectric network. Very, very, very complicated one. Now, there's ways for uh, the nervous system to reroute in certain circumstances, but if permanent damage has been 
has happened, which I have in my left leg, actually, from my back injury. So I, my left leg doesn't work as well as my right leg, and it's not going to recover. It just, the damage was permanent. Well, this could happen. Did you have a, you know, any, you know, impact to your head, unconsciousness, maybe several concussions? Did you have trauma to your spine? There could be several mechanical factors that could go into that. Now, for uh, a mineral deficiency, I would simply start with a calcium, magnesium, potassium, and vitamin D supplementation. And I know Jack's going to probably go nuts on this. Why is he telling you to take all of those when you probably, they usually focus on magnesium? The reason why is simply this, especially because most Americans get plenty of calcium. By doing this, first, you'll, you'll find out, does it get better? Well, if it gets better, you know you're on the right track without having to take each individual supplement trying to figure out if you have one deficiency. And the thing is, if you are deficient in one of those, usually you're deficient in all of them. And I'm talking about potassium, calcium, and magnesium are key electrolytes. You know, uh, calcium will contract your muscle, magnesium will relax it. So I like to keep all that together. Then from there, if you notice improvement, what you do is you simply eliminate each one, you know, at a time. And I would start with calcium and then I would go to potassium. Then I would go to magnesium. Uh, but more than likely, like I said, usually it's magnesium if it's going to be one. But I like to put all three in there and vitamin D because vitamin D is essential for synthesizing those three minerals. So you need to have vitamin D to assimilate those. I know that was kind of complicated, but there was actually two questions in one. So I would say uh, for Josh, I think he's good testosterone-wise. I don't see any issues. Uh, it seems like everything's working great. The RLS, like I said, is it could be many, many things, and I hope that helps. Make sure uh, if you have any more questions, you can contact me via my contact form on my website. And also, I am MSB member. I give 10% off for all my products, my supplements, and my books and my exercise equipment on my website for MSB members. Actually, I'm not going to go off on them for that. All those are part of my supplement regimen myself and some other things. Maybe someday I'll go through what I actually take for supplementation. One of the reasons I like the concept of magnesium and calcium together uh, as a supplement is As Gary further, it's magnesium is necessary for the absorption of calcium. But if you're taking, let's say, you're taking magnesium in the morning and and you're not taking it in the evening, uh, and you are getting your calcium maybe more toward the end of the day than the beginning of the day, you, you may have kind of washed out before you got started, if, if that makes sense. By taking the supplementation together, uh, they're both there when they're most necessary. And uh, really the quality of, of supplements is very important as far as I'm concerned. Make sure you're in highly absorbable states, and, and we'll save that for another day. Let's move on. I have a question now for Michael Jordan on dealing with a weak hive and overwintering it. Michael, take it away, man. Hello, this is Michael Jordan, the bee whisperer of a bee-friendly company in Cheyenne, Wyoming. I'm taking your questions on bees, apiary management, and mead making. Uh, I'm sorry, I'm a little down underneath the weather. I've been uh, filming for my 52 meads in a year on the YouTube. I've done a couple talks for some Miser Cup people and prepping for a couple uh, talks that I'm coming up for the Wyoming Bee College. So 
my voice is a little shot, so hopefully you can bear with me. But I have a question about putting a, a weak hive in a barn over winter. Is it a bad idea? I've had a lot of mixed comments on the old technique and would like to hear your thoughts, Michael. We have 10 colonies, and one of them is a late-year split that had issues getting a queen right. They're in a five-frame nook with a little less than three pounds of bees. The other day we added a candy board and a quilting box to them and have them next to a strong hive. But I was wondering about putting them in a barn and giving them access to the outside via cutout through the barn wall. We know there's some issues with putting bees in a cellar and wondering if, if the same was with the barn. Thanks in advance. Going into winter number two as a beekeeper, I want to keep 100% success rate. The badass homesteader. I like that. Um, I like the idea about this quilting box, the candy board, and I'm going to let you know that um, you can you can do about anything with the bees. A weaker colony of bees is always uh, work for a beekeeper. It takes up more time to make sure they're growing and more feed for the lack of workforce. When it comes time to winter, the weak hive of bees needs more warmth and more feed to help them along. Now, I know we're deep in the winter months right now, but helping the bees by moving them indoors may not be a bad idea. Uh, most of my splits that are late season or late season swarms, I marry back into weaker hives or in hives that are extremely populated. If I have hives that are not doing well, by the end of September, I marry them together. This will make one big strong hive to go over the winter that I have to feed instead of a few weaker hives. If I have a weak nook, I marry it to a hive so it will be overpopulated over the winter months and just feed it heavily. In the spring, I can split the hives and get more of them out over the summer without losing any, but not wasting my time and money on trying to make a weak colony winterize. Now, when it comes to placing a hive in a barn or a shed over the winter months, you need to make sure the temps in the building of your choosing are about 45 degrees all the time. That way, if the temps in the building drop below, the bees will freeze. If they stay at that temperature, the inner core of the hive is about the same temperature as the ambient temperature on the outside, and they'll stay working. You'll need to feed the bees. You need to keep the bees warm. Um, but if you make an opening where they go outside and the beehive is warm, remember if the beehive is too warm, they will fly outside and they'll freeze. So you want to keep the beehive at a, a constant temperature, and you want to make sure that the opening, when the bees come out to the front, that it's not warm enough where they want to come flying out from too much heat. I uh, would look at Slovak hives. They do this all the time. They build them in the building all the time. Uh, they have landing pads on the outside so the bees can walk up inside the hives. Um, you know, uh, the more hives you have inside of a building, the more heat you get, and it helps the bees winterize. There are some beekeepers that move hives for pollination runs to potato cellars in the winter, and they have pool tables in the cellars that supply water and feed. The bees will stay in the earth and ground buildings on a table with two legs, cut one side down, making the table high on one side, and about a foot off the ground on the other. The water or syrup is pumped to the top of the table in a PVC pipe with holes, and then it runs down the felt on the, on the pool table and draining into a bucket. This allows the bees to land on the felted pad, getting water and feed. I feel that your best bet is to place the hive inside to keep them warm, and then feed them, keep an eye on them, keep them warm. 
and next time I would marry the hives together and then split them in the spring. That way you have more working capability. It's not that you're losing your hives when you do this, but you're able to split a hive maybe two to even three times. The honey production will be low, but your growth of your colonies and your apiary gets larger by these techniques. I'm sorry my voice is a little out, but hopefully this has helped you try to think of some things. You can put them in the shed. You can put them in a barn. Just make sure that you're keeping them warm and fed, and it is going to be a little bit more work for you. I am the Bee Whisperer, Michael Jordan of a bee-friendly company. Remind you to buy your honey from a beekeeper you respect. Buy it from a cottage industry because we have to start somewhere and help your fellow man because we all needed help too. I just want to throw out a thank you for Michael to uh, to get his question in. I certainly could have waited a few days, Mike, and and, and you know ran somebody else this week and ran yours next week because um, I know. And those of you that that heard me kind of deal with losing my voice um, late fall last year. It's tough. It's hard to speak for even 10 minutes, um, even on something you love. So thank you, Michael, for, for getting us a great answer to that question. And we certainly forgive uh, the, the strained voice because there's just something you, it's just something you can't do anything about uh, when you're dealing with it other than rest your voice, man, and power through it when you absolutely have to. Next up, I have a question for Old Doc Bones on all things bones. Um, removal of a cast. What if you got to get a cast off and going to the doctor and having a little buzz saw take it off just ain't an option? Hi, Joe Alden, MD here, also known as Dr. Bones of the survival medicine website doomandbloom.net. Now with over 900 articles, videos, and podcasts on medical preparedness. I'm also the co-author, along with my lovely wife, Nurse Amy, of the 700-page, wow, third edition of the Survival Medicine Handbook, The Essential Guide for When Medical Help is Not on the Way. I can answer questions about issues relating to survival medicine. This week's question from the expert counsel comes from Aaron, who writes, I was wondering what methods would be appropriate for removing a plaster of Paris cast at home. My 19-month-old recently got a hairline fracture on her leg that needs to be in a cast for four weeks. Part of me would rather remove it at home instead of going back to the hospital, but it got me thinking in general terms. What would be the best way to do this if a doctor wasn't an option? I've seen methods ranging from water to vinegar soaks to shears to who knows what, smashing it with a hammer. Anyway, I'd be curious to find out what old Doc Bones says. Thanks, Aaron. Aaron, in an off-grid setting, will be dealing with a lot of traumatic injuries, and fractures are certainly high on the list. Of course, in normal times, seek modern professional help. Plaster of Paris hardens to provide stability and strength to a cast for a broken bone or other injury that's most easily removed by an oscillating saw that's specifically made for that purpose. In austere settings where there is no power, a commercial plaster cast shears may be utilized, but it is several degrees of difficulty higher than a power saw, as you might imagine. I've also seen wire saws placed under the cast and successfully used to remove a cast. Now, to do this, place two lengths of plastic tubing on each side of the cast after placing the padding, but before placing the plaster of Paris. Make sure that they don't cause any discomfort in the position that they're placed. Now, when it's time to remove the cast, you can thread the wire saw through the plastic tubing, attach the handles, and slide the tubing off. Or rather, slide the tubing off and then attach the handles. You should then be able to use the saw pulling away from the extremity to cut through the cast material. You might consider using a file 
or sandpaper to make a notch to help start you off. Acetic acid or vinegar will help soften a plaster cast, but it takes quite a while of soaking for it to have an effect. I haven't seen it completely disintegrate a cast all by itself, but it might soften it enough to make it easier to remove. Aaron wrote a PS to his question. I'm a proud new member of the Member Support Brigade and getting real close to pulling the trigger on a discount towards a Doom and Bloom first aid kit. Sure. Uh, indeed, Aaron, all members of the MSB get a discount on anything in Nurse Amy's Doom and Bloom survival medical supply store at store.doomandbloom.net. That's store.doomandbloom.net. Our mission is to put a medically prepared person in every family. This is Joe Alden, MD, that old Dr. Bones, wishing you the best of health and good times or bad. Thanks for listening. Okay, what I'm about to tell you is not saying that you should do this, but it is something that does work. I had a cast on my left wrist at one point in my life. It was a point in my life where I didn't have a lot of money uh, and I didn't have insurance. I was young and really didn't give a damn. And I had a, a, a minor fracture in, I guess it's the, the, the outside bone below the wrist. I didn't actually break my wrist. I broke, uh, I'm not sure which one. You got two bones in your arm. If you're looking down at your arm with your back of your hand up, uh, and that, that bone on the outside, about two inches south of my wrist, I had a hairline fracture there. They put me in a cast, and they said, you know, this won't take that long to heal. You're young, you're in good shape and all, and they gave me a time to come back and said, we'll take the cast off, and we'll x-ray you again. And this was expensive in the first place, and um, about the time it was time for the cast to come off, I decided the hell with this, and it was like a half cast. It went from just below my elbow down to my hand, and I just took a pair of, a big old pair of snip, uh, like shears, like sheet metal shears, They look like a big pair of scissors, like tin snips, I guess you call them. And I just cut that bitch off. And I didn't have any problem doing it at all. Uh, it went right through it. It, was, it wasn't easy, but it wasn't hard. And uh, the last little bit getting around like where my thumb was and all, that was a little tricky uh, to get the things in there. But I would, I would reckon a set of those and a set of the uh, kind of the off-angled uh, cutters that you use to cut something like hardware cloth, If you know the ones I'm talking about, they kind of look like a pair of pliers, but the blades kind of twist a little bit. If I would have had one of those with those, those narrow ones to get that last little bit, it would have been easier. Again, I'm not suggesting that you do this. I'm just telling you I did it and it worked. And that's all I'm going to say. And uh, I've never felt like I would have gained anything by going back to the doctor and giving them another $500. I also didn't have like the previous $500 I didn't have. Because uh, they said, we're going to x-ray it again and make sure. And okay. I mean, and this wasn't even like the, the the fracture itself. They didn't, like, it was, wasn't something like where they had to set it or anything. You could just see this line in the bone uh, where it had this, like, I guess you call it a hairline fracture. And I, I wasn't going back for it. And uh, I figured if my hand fell off, I'd go back. And it didn't. Anyway, just <laughs> it worked. Uh, next up, I have a question for Tim Glantz on uh, Military Tents. Hey everybody, Tim Glantz here from the Old Grouch's Military Surplus with an expert panel answer for Ford who's asking about military tents. And he wants to know uh, what to look for when buying a surplus wall-type tent. Uh, he mentions he's tired of buying uh, cheap tents and having them fall apart in a few years. And he's considering buying some properties and living in the tents while he builds a cabin. Well, uh, the first thing you got to look for is there are some fake military tents out there. Look for a real military tent. Uh... They, 
you come down to two types of materials in a construction. The older ones were canvas. Uh, the newer ones are vinyl. When I, and when I say newer, pretty much everything in the last 20 years has been vinyl. Now, that's important because canvas does not last forever. You can treat it and take care of it and everything else, and you will get a good long life out of it. But when you're buying a surplus tent, you can't guarantee that's happened. For that reason, given a choice, I always recommend the vinyl. I also always recommend the vinyl because it's easier to repair, it's easier to patch, it's less likely to rip. Uh, the biggest downside of the vinyl is canvas, when it's sewn, uh, it tends to kind of self-heal around the stitches. So that, you know, you run a needle through there and that canvas will kind of go down in there and, and seal up around it, especially when it gets a little moisture to it. Vinyl won't do that. When you poke a, a hole into vinyl to sew it, uh, that hole is the same size as that needle, which is always bigger than the stitching. So you will need to go in on a vinyl tent and seam seal every place it's been sewn. Not a big deal, but something to consider. And you can you can tell that when you put up a vinyl tent. If you walk to where the seams are and look, you'll see uh, if it's daylight outside and you've got everything closed down, you'll see it'll look like a little constellation of stars on the stitch holes. Uh, you want to look for the ability to run a wood stove in it with the heater and you base and my preference for long-term use is one of the frame supported ones instead of the pole supported ones because with a pole supported tent like a gp medium every day sometimes many times a day depending on the wind you've got to be out adjusting those ropes and those stakes the frame ones much less critical i put those up and kind of left them for months and never had to go adjust anything that said i would not advise for what you describe as your application getting a tent for what you would pay for a big military tent, then to put a solid floor in it, because believe me, you're going to want a wood floor if you live in that, you can go and just buy a used camper trailer and live in it for the meantime. You'll be more comfortable. You'll have appliances that work without having to install them and buy those. You'll be able to heat and cool it better. Uh, you'll be much better off. And if you ask anybody that's lived in a big tent like that long term, they're going to tell you the same thing. And i got a feeling Jack is going to chime in here and tell you about his time in Panama living in the big tent, and he's going to tell you the exact same thing. So uh, I hope that helps and gives you a little bit to think about. Uh, thanks for the question, and as always, Jack, thanks for the great show. Almost like he had ESP, except for the fact that I spent a long time in the big tent was in Honduras, not Panama. I spent you know, a week or two at a time in, in various tents from GP mediums, GP smalls, and things like that on FTXs, or a.k.a. field training exercises in Panama. But when we deployed to Honduras to build roads in the middle of a place called the Aguan River Valley, uh, we were there for six months, actually six months and a few days. And uh, we, I lived with eight men, well, I lived with seven men, eight of us total, in a GP medium with a plywood floor, for six months. I will tell you that with good staking and a plywood floor so that the poles are supported by the plywood deck that we had. So it was basically, it was like a slump, a subfloor in a house. So it was, they built it, you know, on probably uh, 18 inch centers with your cross members and then threw plywood on top of that, lifted up off the ground. And uh, with that and with no give under the poles, it didn't seem like we did that much adjusting of the ropes. If you saw one loose, you tied it up. Again, though, when you got 500 soldiers walking around and you, you kind of just look out for each other, and if you notice the rope's loose, it might it might be a lot more work with one person worrying about keeping one tent. I, I don't really know. Uh, but I never saw much of a problem with that. But it sucks. 
It sucks, it sucks, it sucks. The only advantage that I would see to a GP medium, let's say, over a travel trailer is, is if you're in there by yourself or with one or two other people, it's pretty damn roomy. It's pretty wide and long, and there's a lot of space in there. Uh, but, but Tim's right. You're going to have to build a deck. You do not want to live on dirt. You know, some of the shorter ones I was talking about, we had, you know, you, you don't build a deck when you set up a tent for a week and let it rain once and you'll understand why you did. Honestly, just the fact that when you, when you get a chance to take a shower or something, you come back to your living area, being able to take your freaking shoes off and not be, you know, standing in dirt and mud and not having animals and bugs and shit crawl up on you when you're asleep, or at least not as much as if you didn't have that floor. It's it's infinitely valuable. So if you were gonna do it, I would suggest definitely that you you know put in a floor. What I would suggest is really following Tim's advice: get a travel trailer, and if you feel you want some space that's protected, I mean I would look at something like uh, just a, a good canvas canopy uh, would be one option or. You know, put up something that's kind of like a the frame of a pole barn, and then just repurpose the material when you're done using it. And I'm talking, you know, just a, a roof and three sides or something like that. Uh, it doesn't have to if it's going to be, you know, that way you got some kind of like you put that right outside your travel trailer, or like or build yourself what would amount to basically a long awning, at, where you've got some outdoor space. Maybe throw some pallets down and just deck that with plywood. Um, and again, that can all be repurposed later. I think your life will be better. You know, get yourself a grill and, and cook outside whenever the weather is fitting for it, and uh, that way you, you you only really use the travel trailer for sleeping and, and maybe storing some of your, your clothes in and taking a shower and stuff like that. Um, I'll give you the god honest truth. In the military, you go through what's called a reenlistment window. Okay. So there is a time when you can just reenlist, and that's when they'll give you a bonus to reenlist, or let you change your job. And there's a, generally speaking, at, at, at least the battalion level, there's a guy there that's called the reenlistment NCO. He's basically the inside recruiter. He, his job is to get young guys uh, that 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 you can reenlist for four to six years and and maybe get rid of them then later so you don't have to worry about retirement because back then you got your full retirement and all if you stayed twenty that's when they really want you because you're experienced you know what you're doing you ain't making that much money yet you're still young enough to do whatever the hell they tell you to and there's a good chance that you'll run that second enlistment and you'll go on about your civilian way and a very small number stay after that second enlistment and stay to be old men which in the army is like thirty so. When that window hit for me, I had this picture of this tent that I lived in for that period of time, and it was next to something called the leach field, which is where all the water from the shower point went, where 500 dudes took a shower every day into this open leach field with this green water, and the only thing that lived in there were these giant cane toads. And it stunk, and I lived in that tent in the Honduran dust for six months next to that leach field. And I took that picture, and I put it on my wall locker so that when I woke up in the morning and I got out of my rack and I looked at that wall locker, the first thing I would see is that picture. So that any time that sergeant talked to me about reenlisting, I would remember that I could end up living in that tent again. And it made it very easy to say, I think I'll go back to being a civilian. I probably would have done it anyway. I enjoyed my, my, my three years in the military. 
I did. Um, I, I'm glad I was able to to give something back, and I feel like because of the work we did in Honduras alone that I did give something back. People say, you were in the Army. You were blowing up brown people. But I didn't blow anybody up. We built roads and schools in the middle of a very impoverished area of Panama for that six-month period anyway. Uh, I feel like it really shaped my life, but I was always the guy that I'm probably not staying in. And it, it took about you know six weeks after basic AIT and all that and, and getting to a permanent duty station realizing this would be the next 20 years of my life to go, this is not what I want to do. But any thoughts I had of it, uh, any... Uh, any uh, seduction of the, look at what we can do. You want a better job than the mechanic? These are all the things you qualify to do. You get a bonus with this, all that shit. Just, sorry, Sarge, not interested. Have a good day. Um, it made it real easy because I lived in that tent for six months. When you think, hey, I'll just buy an Army MASH-style tent and live in it for... It's better than living without it, but I wouldn't choose it. I'm just saying. Next up, I have a question for Jeff Lawton on, on using pool water when you, when you backwash your flu, your pool, or, or vacuum your pool. You got all this water, but it's got this chlorine stuff in it. So, Jeff, how could we might use that and make it more suitable? Hi. This is Jeff Lawton here, and I'm coming to you from Australia. And... Um I'm here to answer your questions about permaculture and permaculture design and um, general self-sufficiency. If you want to know more about what I'm up to, then you can look me up on jefflawtononline.com and also on the website The Permaculture Circle, where I have a lot of free information and a lot of free videos. Um, Now we have another question here about how can we filter chlorinated pool water from uh, the pool water backwash. And um, uh, Blake asking, asking a question here, wants to see if we can use the, the water that's been backwashed out of his uh, dad's swimming pool and take the water downhill and put it into a pond. And I imagine when we're talking a pond, we're talking about a life-rich pond. Well, we've got chlorine. Um, If you oxygenate chlorine, if you if you bubble air through it for long enough, it, it'll it'll oxidize off. So if you really throw you know um, an equal volume of air to the volume of water through every minute for an hour or two, it it'll it'll blow off into the atmosphere. But that's quite a lot of energy. But that'll help you straight away. So if you've got um, every cubic foot of water has a cubic foot of air bubbled through it every minute. Um, it'll bubble off in an hour or two and, and be quite thorough. Um, and then we can take it through a set of uh, gravel reed beds. So um, oxygenation uh, for a period and then going into uh, a biological cleaning system of uh, gravel reed beds about two foot deep uh, with uh, water passing through the roots of the reeds or pull out a lot of the other elements and quite a lot of the chlorine if there's some left over. And then if you've got You might have to trial it. You might have to do uh, a reed bed and see if it's clean enough. And then if it's not, add another one into the into a series. And when you've got uh, enough passage through the biological cleaning system of the reed roots, so you'll come out the other end well and truly capable of running a, a biologically rich pond for you. So I hope that'll help. Uh, so initially, I actually didn't think that one was too feasible. 
but when I think about the amount of discharge of water that one gets with a backwash or even a decent vacuuming, I think you're, you're probably looking at something in the neighborhood of about 300 gallons, uh, not in a backwash, but with a back, backwash and a vacuuming. A backwash would be much less than that. Um, if that water was routed in a, a great big 300-gallon container, what would we use? Oh, an IBC. And, uh, you know, a large air stump in the bottom, the oxygenation wouldn't, wouldn't be that difficult to pull off, though it does seem like it would be a lot of energy. I may kick this one back to Jeff and ask him for some ideas. Well, what do you do if you don't want to do all that? And if not, the water's not going to end up in a pond, it just ends up in the ground. Because my issue is I have this very issue. Um, weekly, my pool has to be serviced during the summer and about bi-weekly or tri-weekly, depending on uh, you know how, how cold it gets during the winter, so I'm like a two, three weeks in between it. And right now that water just goes on the ground and kind of goes to an area where I don't really have anything going on. And I, I've often thought, you know, that's kind of a waste of that water. Um, and, you know, kind of channeling and controlling it somewhere, but it is chlorinated. And that's my biggest concern about it. I'm not really concerned about much else that's in that water because uh, chlorine is about the only chemical that we, we ever use in there. Um, but it's going in the ground anyway. So it, it might make sense to start thinking about something we could do over there. And my thought might be some sort of like a micro-swale earthworks thing and that the first row would be something like locust trees. And then... That water has to percolate through the ground to get to a second layer of something a little bit more productive. Or maybe we just channel into something and we grow some sort of uh, ornamental tree there because not every tree has to produce food, and that would give us more shade, which is valuable to us uh, in our climate in many ways. So I, I might kick that back to him, ask him for some ideas, send him some actual pictures of what I'm dealing with because up till now I've just had other things to take care of and haven't felt that – Uh, that water's really much of a resource, more of a wasted resource, unfortunately. And there's one way to do it he gave us, but maybe there's a more passive, less energy-intensive way to make use of it. And we'll see about that. So that brings me to the question that I'm fielding today. Um, I try to, on these shows, always have something that I you know, take on myself to back clean up with. And I thought this was a really good one for today, uh, kind of rounding things out. Uh, this comes from Justin. In Florida, and Justin says, Hi, Jack. I was I'm wondering whether it would be better to buy a cheapish greenhouse from Harbor Freight Tools or to build one from scratch. Details, I live just outside of Tampa, Florida, so we have blistering summers that will play hell on cheap polycarbonate plastics that Harbor Freight Greenhouse uses. I'm also concerned about wind rating a Harbor Freight Greenhouse. I've seen where people modify them to make them stronger, though. My question is, what would you do? Go with a cheap Harbor Freight Greenhouse or bite the bullet and custom build one from scratch? Knowing it will cost two to three times as much, I'm wanting to start an aquaponic setup and in and around the greenhouse. Thanks for all you do. Love the show. Justin. All right, so I'm going to end up telling you don't even worry about a greenhouse where you live, but I'm going to start out answering the question the way you asked it. My neighbor has one of those Harbor Freight greenhouses. Multiple times I've gotten the extended pole from my pool, and I've gone over to the oak trees that, that are on my side of the property line that I share with them, And I have had to take that pole and knock those polycarbonate panels out of the tree and set them back over the fence and put a weight on them so they don't blow away again. Because they blow right out of the greenhouse. And once they get in a good Texas wind, they end up, I'm, I'm serious to God, 10, 15 feet up a tree. We've had some of them. 
I've also found them laying on the ground all over the place, and I stopped finding them. Um, but I've also noticed that like four are just gone now. They've they've ended up, and I hope they don't think that like, I got tired of putting them back in their yard. I, no big deal, but they just I guess they blew over the other fence or went out in the road or whatever, and they're gone, and they've kind of given up. I haven't seen them actually use it. And it's a shame because they put a lot of money into it because they put a concrete slab down to mount it on. They probably got twice as much money in the concrete slab as they do in the greenhouse. So my opinion of these is not very good. However, there are some clips that somebody sent me an email one time with some pictures. I don't remember where you get them, but if you if you Google uh, something like probably clips for Harbor Freight Greenhouse, there's a lot of people have done it with these certain clips. They go on the outside and they prevent those polycarbonate panels from blowing out. So I've seen people make them better, and I guess it would be better than nothing, maybe. Okay, now, if you want to know what I would do, I put in a greenhouse this year. We built it from lumber and uh, the, the Tough Tex panels that you get at Home Depot. So what would I do? I would build a greenhouse. Uh, we put some decent windows in it, and uh, I've got a little handyman guy coming out to finish the door work up for me this week, cause, or next week, because I don't have time to do it right now. Uh, so that's what I did, and I did it for an aquaponics system. I will spend eight months out of the year with a piece of 50% shade cloth over the top of the greenhouse, and both of the windows, all, all four of the windows open and the doors wide open, and probably some level of ventilation, some level of mechanical ventilation to keep airflow through there, to keep it cool. Okay, But I put a greenhouse in because we get temperatures down into the teens here, and while we don't get it a lot every year, we get it, and we get it consistently. Last winter was really the first winter that we had that was really a super mild winter where we had like three days where we got a frost and one day that we got a light freeze. Most other years, we get snow, we get ice, and we get stuff like that. I looked at your, you know, your climate. You typically get one day below freezing every two years. I don't think you need a greenhouse. I think you need a shade house. Here's the good news. There's a lot of ways to do that, and it's a lot cheaper. Um, because of something I'm working on, and because it's winter, if you take my advice, I'm going to ask you, if you're going to buy shade cloth, wait at least a week before you do. I'm working on something that might save you some money when you buy it. But you can buy custom-cut, grommeted shade cloth in whatever shade amount you want for not a lot of money compared to something like building a greenhouse. Because I'm talking about you can you know, build a tunnel that's 50 foot long. If you look at the videos on my YouTube channel of my quail aviary, you can see one way to do that. I think that's far more complex than it needs to be for what you want to do. I'll talk about what you can do. But that is if you know basically nine-foot ceilings and a half round using cattle panels. And that worked out really good, and everybody looks like I loved it. Now, I'm trying to keep quail in there, so I got a lot of money in hardware cloth alone, and I got a lot of money in lumber. I'm about to build a second grow tunnel to extend that system. It's going to be 50 foot long, and I'm going to do it with cattle panels, and I'm not going to put any hardware cloth on it. I'm going to drop a piece of shade cloth I already have that I bought for another project we decided not to do. It's 50 by 16 uh, feet, and it's 50% shade cloth. 50% shade in this climate or yours is a beautiful 
growing environment. It's with the amount of sun and the intensity here in the south, you get plenty of sun to grow tomatoes, to grow peppers, to grow melons, to grow cucumbers. You can do anything you want there. If you feel the need to get more um rapid growth during your cool season, that you do have a cool season, I would take more of like a cloche approach to this. And what I mean by that is take something like electrical conduit. It's cheap. Get a conduit bender. Build yourself some hoops that go over your grow beds and cover them with, with just, you know, basically painter's uh, plastic during the, the winter And then it's easy to just kind of roll it up and open it up during the, 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 the heat of the day because you still get some very warm days in the, in the summer. You get your average high temperature from what I read is around 70 degrees in most of the winter. So you, you don't even need much of that. So if you're hell bent on a greenhouse, I would definitely self-build because it'll give you a lot of opportunities to think about the way you want to handle ventilation. Building it specifically so that it's easy to cover with shade cloth. If you look at the design that we did with ours, we did basically sort of like a lean-to design, even though the roof slope is very modest. So we have a, you know, if you climb up the back with a, a rolled-up piece of shade cloth and anchor it to the back and just push it out and unroll it like a burrito, it just rolls out and drops down the front. That was by design. That was intentional. If you're thinking about trying to put a shade cloth over that Harbor Freight thing with that, you know, gable roof or whatever, I just think it's going to be a pain in the ass. I don't see you gaining anything by, by putting that greenhouse in Tampa, Florida. I, I really don't. I think you'll be miserable with it. I think you'll hate it. I think by the time you get done doing all the things necessary to make it work, you will have a greenhouse that you've spent almost as much money on as custom building. And if you custom build, you can that greenhouse isn't very big. If you're going to build a greenhouse for an aquaponics system, uh, we built mine 12 by 12. And there's two IBCs in there, and there's a couple flood and drain beds, and then it ties in to the grow tunnel that's in with the quail. Kind of wish it was bigger. I can't see two 330s sitting inside that Harbor Freight greenhouse if you want the tanks in the greenhouse, which would make the most sense because we can open up and vent it during the summer, but during the winter we can close it down and, and warm that water up and help get through the night. That's kind of our plan here. I just don't think you need it in your climate. I think you're better off creating protection for your grow beds. And uh, But if you want a greenhouse, I would self-build. And I, I would challenge most people that are thinking about putting a greenhouse and to ask yourself, how much utility you'll get out of it. Um, for some of you, it's a wonderful idea. For some of people like me, it's an okay idea. Like, it's better than not having one here, but you, you, you'll see over the, over the next, you know, springtime, the effort will all go into things that are outside the greenhouse. That's why we only did a 12 by 12. You know, we can put some plants in there that are well started and coming out from under the lights and getting hardened off or whatever to go into the, aquaponics or whatever, um, it, it helps maintain a thermal battery. Uh, we have some modifications David and I are going to make to the whole system uh, that will be in place by the, the spring event. Uh, for, for those of you that are wanting to come to the spring event, uh, which would be the third week in March, I am probably going to I'm probably going to put the tickets on sale Thursday or Friday next week. There'll be plenty of advance notice of that. It, it may go to Monday of the following week is probably what I'm going to do. 
In fact, I'm going to say right now, that's what I'm going to do. That'll make it easier for people to be ready for it. Uh, I'll put them up for sale. It'll go to MSB first. But we'll have a lot of new stuff to show you if you came to the last one with what we're doing there. Um, but again, really think about when you say you want a greenhouse, well, why? Because I, sometimes I think greenhouses are like swales. I'll hear from somebody who says, Jack, I need to put swales in my property. I said, we'll start explaining it. Well, we got this really fertile loam soil, and it rains here a lot, and we hardly irrigate our gardens as it is, and the land's mostly flat, and... Uh, you know, uh, and you go on, well, you're going to put ponds in so that we're using these swells to catch water and move water to pond. No, I don't really want to see putting ponds in. And, well, what do you want to do? I want to grow a bunch of trees. Well, plant your trees. Throw down some mulch and plant your trees. You know, if you got a, a situation where you don't need a swell to make a tree grow, uh, you don't need it. So don't do it. You know, if you're in a dry climate and you need to, 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 to preserve that water every single chance you get or whatever, or, you got you know, really poor soils, and you're going to use those swales as a method with fertigation from livestock to improve the fertility or whatever. But if you got great soil, you can just plant a tree and it grows. Just start planting your trees. Use the chicken tractor method or something like that. Don't. And I feel a lot of times with greenhouses, like I want a greenhouse because in a self-sufficiency uh, homestead or in a, in a in a permaculture homestead or whatever is in your head, you have to have a greenhouse. Well. You, you may or may not benefit from having a greenhouse. Um, if you wanted, you know, to grow some plants that are uh, the type of plant that you you would use in the tropics that are perennials, um, you're better off putting them in pots and just bringing them in for those few nights a, a, a year than going through the hassle of having a greenhouse. So just kind of think about whether you really want to do it or not. With that, I hope you enjoyed today's show. I, I found it really interesting. I learned a lot from our expert panel, which is not a big stretch. That happens all the time. Uh, I enjoyed doing today's show. I enjoyed doing this week's shows. Uh, I hope you guys thought you got a good week this week. Sometimes I have days that aren't the best, you know, and, uh, you know, they pop up here and there, but I feel like we did a really good job for you this week. If you think we did, and uh, you want to support our show so that we're always here for you. The best way to do that is to uh, join the Member Support Brigade. Just go to survivalpodcast.com, click on Members to learn more. And remember, military, law enforcement, Peace Corps, and first responders, all of you guys qualify for a discount. If you email me before, not after you join, email me at jack at survivalpodcast.com. Put TSPC service discount in the subject line. Tell me about your service in one or two sentences. That's all it takes. I'll send you that discount code. Everybody else, it's still a great deal. You get really great discounts. I'm working on something cool right now. We'll see if I can pull this one off for you. Um, I want to say something, though, to all of you that are members and have ever been members. Dorothy and I owe you everything. We really do. You guys made our ability to do this show, to live the life we live, to learn all the stuff we learned, to share all the information possible. Without you, it would have never happened. Um, you guys, Some of you guys have followed me since I was in the car. You followed me to Arkansas. You followed me back to Texas. You supported me all along the way. I try to say thank you a lot today. I'm just blocking off this little extra piece of time to say a sincere thank you. I don't care if you were a member for one month for five bucks. Thank you. You've helped contribute to my life, and I hope that the work we do here helps to contribute to yours. The other way you can support us, and it is the painless way to support us because it doesn't cost you anything, is when you're going to shop on Amazon anyway, go to go to tspaz.com, T-S-P-A-Z.com. There's a tab that says that on the website. If you just happen to be on the website and you think, I'm going to go to Amazon, and uh, there's a link there. You click that link, you go to Amazon, you do your shopping, you support us that way too. doesn't cost you anything. doesn't really take any extra time. And every day I have an item up for review. 
Uh, today is uh, we're continuing our project of building building a gunsmith and gun maintenance kit for 2017, and the product I have for you today are Grace USA Steel Punch Set. There's a lot of gunsmith punch sets out there that are cheap. Uh, you can get some with a hammer, and they're not that bad. I actually have one that I've linked to from another post that's okay. But this is the the good set that I have. Um, they come in. A, it's a set that comes with a variety of sizes. It gives you a five sixty fourth, a one sixteenth, a three thirty second, a one eighth, and a five thirty second, plus a center punch and a starter punch. And, and those will do most anything you'll need to do with your gun maintenance, especially if you use a little bit of care and thoughtfulness with certain pins. I'll talk about in a second. But I'll tell you how I first learned about punch kits. Now, if you're not familiar with the term punch, I realize some people might not be clear with what I'm talking about. It's basically a little tool that has a handle, and then it comes down to the diameter of the pin that I just gave you, and you use it to knock pins out. That's the primary use for a punch. So you got a gun, and you want to take out, let's say, the trigger assembly, and there's a couple little pins in there, and we take those, and we put them up against it, and we take something like a, a gunsmith hammer, and we tap that pin until it comes out. And one day I was taking apart so I could do a really thorough cleaning my 870 shotgun. And I needed to get a pin out of it, and I couldn't get it to come out by just pushing on it. And I tried pushing on it with a key, and it wouldn't come out. So I went out to the shanty, and I looked around, and I found a little nail, and I came back in. I had a ball-peen hammer and a nail, and I had this sitting on the kitchen table at my grandmother's. And I'm sitting down with a towel underneath, and I'm tapping the nail with the hammer. And it works, okay? Almost everybody out there that's a, a shade tree gunsmith has done this at one time or another. You've been at a range, you needed to do something like that, and you didn't have it. You find a, a nail, a piece of wire, whatever. It'll work. It's not the right tool. The old man comes in, right? And he, he says several four-letter words and mumbles something under his breath about the right tool for the right job. But then he remembers his grandfather and says, ah, well, you figured it out. You know what you're doing there. You, but, you know, let me show you something. So he takes me out in a shanty, which is like a, a work shed and uh pulls out this drawer and pulls out this old wooden box i wish i had these punches he says here use these and it was an old set of punches drift punches and uh so that's how i learned to, you know to use the right tool now when it comes to punches for gunsmithing this is something many of you that know what a punch is may not know all this and that's what i try to do is bring information to you so you're more informed you can make better decisions no matter where you buy your stuff So there's what's called a roll punch, and those are really for a, a roll pin, which is a pin that's not solid. You'll see, you've seen them. They're, they're, you can see through them. Sometimes a little bitty, but you can see through them. Usually they're open on one side as well, and they're designed so that when you put them in there, they kind of they line up a little bit better, and they're a little bit better about knocking out a roll pin. Okay. Then there are standard steel punches, which is just a solid steel punch, which is what these are. There's brass punches. And brass is a softer metal, so it's a little less likely to mark up steel when you're popping steel out with it. But since it's softer, if it's hard to get a pin out, it can bend. So when you try to use a brass punch and it's not working, you don't just keep beating the shit out of it. You switch over to a steel punch or you figure out that there's a reason this pin ain't coming out and I got to do something else. And then there's what are called nylon punches, which are what they sound like. They're just a hard piece of stiff nylon that doesn't mark anything up. A lot of times these used are used on larger pins that are pins that you should be able to actually push out, like the pins on an AR. Sometimes they get stuck, and this is you know that would be a, a, a use for those. 
The reason I suggest that if you don't have any punches in your gunsmith kit, you start with a, a standard solid steel punch, is they will do everything you need done, including, with a little bit of tact, taking out your roll pin punches if you're careful. But a roll punch doesn't work really good on a, a regular pin. And a brass punch can bend, and it has a specific time when you're using it to avoid marking up a pin. In general, if my pin gets a little marked up, as long as it doesn't mess it up, it doesn't cause like some kind of damage where it don't want to fit right or something like that, I don't really give a damn if a pin's got a little marking on it. So you go with a steel punch. I'll also say this. This product is not cheap. It's not expensive, but it's not cheap. You can get a decent punch set for $10. Bucks. And if you want to go on 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 uh, on onto uh, Amazon and find your own punch set and say this is good enough, it's it's okay. But you'll see a lot of pictures of them bending and stuff like that. This is a very hard steel. These are made by Grace USA, as you might imagine, is U.S. made. And another thing I really like about them is they're actually marked. Like when you pick up the 332nd, it says right on it 332nds. It seems like a small thing, but when you're working on a gun with various size pins and you've got them all sitting out in front of you on a table, they all kind of like, well, which one is that? And you're trying to figure it out and stuff. When they're marked, it's very easy to know there's my 332nd pin punch. Just saying. Um, and again, made in the USA, and this is my, my, my deal with certain tools. Certain tools, unless you do something stupid with them, like trying to use a punch as a pry bar, which I've seen people do, the punch should last longer than you. It should be there. Your kid should be using, giving it to your grandkid, and you should be dead, right? So it's a it's a it's a really great case when it, when a tool has that capacity to be a buy once cry once tool, and it's not that twenty seven bucks for this set of um, of seven punches. You put that in your gunsmithing kit. You may decide someday if you do a lot of work with with rebuilds or something, and you you do roll pins all the time. You want a set of roll pin punches. Uh, you may decide you want some nylon punches or something like that. But, again, if you have these, you can pretty much do anything that you're going to need to do, unless you have a pin, like I've read people, this punch sucks, it got all messed up. I was trying to get the side off of Mosin Nagant. That gun's 120 years old, dude. It's not coming out. You're going to have to figure something else out to get it out of there. You know, uh, stuff like that. Otherwise, this stuff just lasts. So, in certain situations, buy quality. However... Um, if you needed a punch set and you spent 10 bucks and got one and were careful with it, I wouldn't put you down for it. Because when you need it, it's better than using a nail. But if you have to use a nail, a nail will work. Trust me, I've done it before, uh, after I got, before I got caught and after I got caught by the old man. Uh, I did it just the other day because I was being lazy and what I needed to do wasn't that big a deal. In fact, the nail that I did it with is still sitting here on my desktop right now. Anyway, with that, let's go ahead and uh, talk about today's closing song. I've been waiting to play this one. Today, Donald Trump was sworn in as the 45th President of the United States. As many of you know, I was not on the Trump train. Woo, woo. However, I feel that Donald Trump has done us a service just because I haven't heard Hillary Clinton's mouth for three months. So if nothing else, I'll give him that. And he seems to have gotten out to a decent start as presidents go. So I'm going to give him a chance before I start calling him an ass clown, though I'm sure it won't be long before he becomes the new ass clown in chief in my vernacular. I don't really know. I always give people a chance before I start beating the shit out of him. I did it for Barack Obama. Barack Obama very quickly became the ass clown in chief. 
uh, and, and just doing shit that, that I didn't want done to my country. And so what I've been trying to explain to people, like on social media, when you hear me happy that Barack Obama's leaving, it doesn't mean that I'm a Trump fanatic or something like that. It means I'm happy to see him go. I can have a guest in my house that's annoying as shit. And I could have another guest on the way, and, and the departure of the first guest could coincide with the arrival of the second guest, and I could be totally unhappy about the second guest. I'm still happy. I'm still very happy to see the first guest get out of my door and go down the road and not come back, especially if they don't return. And when you're president for two terms in this country, you don't get to come back. So I watched Barack Obama. Wandering around the White House today. They were showing him the last time in the Oval Office. You can see him through the window, wandering around like a poor homeless guy, trying to figure out what to do with himself because he knows he has to leave and he don't think he wanted to. And all I could say was, get out, get out, get out, get out, get the F out. The dogs all looked at me like they did something wrong. So I gave them a biscuit and life was well after that. But I've been waiting to play this song. This song was released all the way back in 1969, but boy, boy oh boy, does it fit today. The band is Steam, and I bet many of you can guess what the song is. Na-na-na-na, na-na-na, hey, 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 goodbye. I thought about playing Motley Cruz. don't go away mad, just go away. But they keep saying girl in there, so I, I don't think that really fits our former President Obama. I know some of you liked President Obama, and the reason you tune into my show is I don't spend a lot of time beating up on politics anymore. I often talk about how what they're going to do, regardless of who it is, is going to affect you, but I don't usually just sit around beating up politicians individually. There's enough talking heads to do that. But, but, I'm going to bet the vast majority of the 150,000 people that tune in today really like the word that they just heard. Or the phrase they just heard. Former President Obama. Whether you're happy about Trump or not, whether you think Trump's going to do a great job, an okay job, a mediocre, mediocre job, a little bit better, a little bit worse, a lot worse, I bet there's a lot of people out there, no matter how they feel about Donald Trump, are happy to say to our, current, our former President Barack Obama, hey, 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 goodbye. Sounds like a great way to end the week. With that, this has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tougher, even if they don't.